Okay, I think it's doing it. Um, hey, y'all. Welcome to Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. We've created this podcast in hopes of energizing ourselves during this crazy time, and we hope that this conversation we're having today will fuel those that, are, that listen as well. I'm Nellie. I'm Quinn. And I'm Paige. Today we'll be talking about Phyllis, the first episode of Mrs. America, which is a new FX original series on Hulu that tells the story of movements on both sides of the Equal Rights Amendment of the 1970s. Today we're super excited to have Dr. Melody Lynn joining us. Dr. Lynn is the Assistant Professor of Rhetoric and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of the South with special interests in public address, rhetorical criticism, and rhetorical pedagogy. Pedagogy or goggy? Pedagogy. Oh, I'm an English major, I promise. What she said. Um, on top of being an all-around icon, she also, quote, researches and writes at at the intersection of rhetoric, politics, and gender with an interest in the public discourse of American women, end quote. I stole that from the internet. I also took her Voices of American Women class last semester where we studied speeches by Phyllis Schlafly, Gloria Steinem, and Shirley Chisholm, to name a few. So that is to say, she fits in perfectly with today's discussion. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to join you all, especially in conversation about this terrific new miniseries that I think raises awareness about what seems like a faraway time in our history, but certainly raises a lot of questions that we're still grappling with now in American politics. So I could not be more thrilled to be with you and to talk about this inaugural episode, Phyllis, on the iconic Phyllis Schlafly. The icon. The icon. So before we dig into our discussion, it's important to note that we're trying to approach this conversation from an intersectional and academic framework. We're not perfect, and this is our first time putting on a podcast, so we may stumble a couple of times and have Wi-Fi cutouts. But as students <laughs> of the Women and Gender Studies, we're excited to engage in this conversation and see all that we can unpack from the first episode of Mrs. America. And also, as a quick disclaimer, our views and opinions are, of course, our own. So let's jump in. Okay. So to get it started, I feel like this is a good framing question since the entire series is framed through Phyllis Schlafly. Like, that's the first way that we access the um, entire series. So I found it really interesting that although most of the other episodes in the series are dedicated to other women like Shirley Chisholm and Jill Ruckelshaus, um, we access Mrs. America as a series through a highly fictionalized depiction of Phyllis Schlafly's introduction to the ERA fight first. What effect, if any, does this choice to centralize Schlafly's experience at the start of the series have on our viewing of this episode or more broadly, the representation of the issues that play out? So I think this is a great opening question. And to me, as a viewer and as a scholar of women's voices and, and women's rhetoric, to me, it actually made perfect sense to start with Schlafly. Really? For, yeah, for a few reasons. Okay. I think as kind of an orientation, she's important because we know that ERA had a long history. And by the 1970s, it did enjoy widespread bipartisan support. Yeah. Richard Nixon endorsed it. 
I spent a week in the archives of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library several years ago. I found a copy of the 1972 RNC program, which included a full page endorsement of ERA by none other than Pat Nixon, who people don't remember oh, wow. very fondly, you know, as anything more than this Stepford wife caricature. She wasn't a Jackie, she wasn't a Lady Bird, and yet Pat Nixon endorsed ERA in this full page um, part of the program. And in that endorsement, she interestingly enough, and I'm, I'm working on a side project about this right now, she doesn't endorse ERA out of any level of personal conviction, but rather talks about ERA as a reflection of the Republican Party's long and growing um, commitment to women. Hmm. And of course that is subject for debate both then and now, but ERA was not partisan really until Schlafly appeared. And it, it, the show catches this, I think, kind of well. She seemed to appear almost out of nowhere. Yeah. So that first episode captures this sentiment when you see Steinem and Ferdan and Bella Abzug and others just kind of laughing together and brushing her off. There's this kind of tongue-in-cheek moment where Ferdan can't even pronounce Phyllis Schlafly's name, which is really supposed to underscore that Certainly at the national level, no one really knew who she was. And yet, as we come to see in these subsequent episodes, her grassroots efforts really take off and culminate in this nationwide Stop ERA campaign, which really lived up to its name because here we are some 40 or so years later. And while we're closer than ever before to having ERA, um, we still don't have an Equal Rights Amendment. And it is not hyperbole to suggest that this, you know, one woman changed the entire arc of this amendment's history. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing I would add here about starting with Schlafly, and Quinn, you mentioned this in your introduction, you took the rhetoric class that I teach here, usually once a year, Voices of American Women. And as you mentioned, we read speeches by Schlafly and as well by Gloria Steinem, we looked at Shirley Chisholm, we looked at Betty Friedan, and students, especially in that class, they've at least heard of people like Gloria Steinem yeah. or Betty Friedan. They may not have heard of Shirley Chisholm, though, and I think we could certainly speculate some reasons why that's the case, right? Yeah. But they're at least somewhat familiar with the names of the luminaries like Steinem and Friedan in particular, but most of the students I've taught in this class, as well as in other classes where I have used Schlafly as an example, they don't know who she is. So mm -hmm. I think from an orientation standpoint, it makes sense to start with her there as well. And students tend to really have strong reactions to her. And to me, I think that's a way to sort of ask the viewer from what position they approach this series and they tend to seem to know a lot more about the others that are represented so for me it's a great way to hook the viewer hmm. and then say we're going to show you what you think you know in a different light and we're going to show you what you absolutely did not know at all see that's so interesting to me because and that makes a lot of sense but this proves why it's good to have these conversations about this mm -hmm. because i was watching it with my mom 
And I found myself really frustrated by the fact that we're accessing this narrative through Schlafly. I think the biggest issue that I took with it, and we'll get into this in the second question, but is just how highly fictionalized um, this entire first episode is, perhaps more so than some of the later episodes that I've seen. And so I found that frustrating, especially because Sarah Paulson's character, Alice, who, you know, kind of ignites Phyllis Schlafly's interest in the entire ER8 movement, it seems to come from a really good and wholesome place um, and have genuine beliefs tied to her disregard for the ERA is a fictionalized character. So I think for me, I found it problematic because I, and again, we'll get to this in the second question, I thought that it was trying to make the viewer empathize with Schlafly, which obviously, of course, my personal biases play into me finding that problematic. But I think you bring up a really great point. I mean, like I said, I watched this with my mom and she was, of course, like four, five, six when this was all happening, but she had no idea who Phyllis Schlafly was. And so I think that that's really valid and really interesting to think about putting her first because we may not know her as well. I really like that idea. Yeah, and as you're as you're making these suggestions, I think this all sounds right. And maybe the final thing I would add, it's, you know, when we think about the show, and certainly the, the second question gets at this with the fictionalized aspects at play here, this show is intended to not just sort of share this history and reignite conversation. It's intended to bring in ratings. Yeah. And when you look at this yeah. cast of incredible actresses, Kate Blanchett is the one who is really the big film star. She has oh a couple of Academy Awards under her belt. Rose Byrne is amazing, but she certainly doesn't have the public image that someone like Blanchett has. So Definitely. to me, I think starting with her also is very much a marketing consideration that hmm. people who are already fans of this actress would be much more inclined to start the show and then hopefully get hooked. And then that becomes, you know, by episode three, oh, who's Shirley Chisholm? Oh, wait, it's my favorite character from Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Oh, look at her. And oh, who's Shirley Chisholm? So, I mean, people living in the 70s who were aware of politics, Shirley Chisholm was no stranger. She was certainly a nationally known figure. And um, certainly she had her detractors. And I think encountered a lot of intersectional injustice in her life and we see some of that play out in the third episode but I think you know from a strategic standpoint starting with Phyllis Schlafly is really also a question of starting with Kate Blanchett to yeah. her and to drive up ratings and 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 so on and so forth yeah, yeah I think that's, that's a so... great segue oh sorry Nellie. no you're good I just think that's so huge I haven't even thought about like the ratings kind of element which I think because I'm looking at it from like I guess like similar to Quinn I'm like I don't want to empathize with Phyllis Schlafly like why is she first and I'm like give me Gloria Steinem but then like as you're watching it you're like if this had started with the end scene of the first episode um it would be kind of glorifying the situation and not necessarily like pulling in some of the things that like we didn't know about and also like I don't think about I didn't think about the fact that like it is Kate Blanchett we need to have her like at the forefront of this um that's big, a big star big big star <laughs> and the question the fact that you all ask this question in general but also as the first question just shows that you're watching this as critical viewers in exactly the way that 
your WGS training here at Swanee would invite you and I think also compel you to watch as a responsible viewer. So asking a question like this, I've in just on my own for my own interesting leisure as quarantine reading as well as <laughs> in preparation for our conversation today, I've read a lot of reviews some from really credible sources and some from super questionable sources. I don't think I've seen a single instance where this question was really asked in the way that you asked it. So I think that the question itself shows already that you're approaching this miniseries from uh, a receptive but also a critical standpoint, and that's exactly how you should be watching it. Yeehaw, that is high praise. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> it's true. I think talking about reviews is the perfect segue to question two, and this is what I really found interesting, not only within the series, but with this particular episode especially. So as Allison Shoemaker writes in her review for Roger Ebert, quote, one of the sharpest, most empathetic aspects of the miniseries is its readiness to illustrate the ways in which the intelligent, driven Schlafly was discriminated against. In this fictional telling, she is belittled, dismissed, ignored, harassed, and condescended to, but nevertheless, she persists. <laughs> that is, until she's ignored in that meeting, one in which she's the most expert authority, end quote. So, as viewers, how did you feel about Schlafly's portrayal in this episode, and of far-right women in general? Is there a danger to framing Schlafly in this way? Well, I'll foreground my answer with, yes, absolutely there is. <laughs> So I think there's a lot really going on in this summary um, by Roger Ebert in, in this review. And I think this the place to start is his use of the word fictional. You can't at any point in watching this show forget that there are elements that are fictionalized, that are dramatized, that are coupled together and amplified in ways to make things appear in a certain way so that you as a viewer look at it um, in, in that light. Yeah. So I think... I would start by saying that broadly speaking, in broad strokes, the show seems to get a lot right, even though obviously liberties are taken. One of the most critical voices that I've found, and I, I have his book here at home, um, Schlafly has a biographer, Donald Critchlow, who teaches at Arizona State University, and he is a professor there. I would foreground anything I said about him as a biographer. He is I think pretty openly conservative. His biography is published with a university press book. I believe it's published with Princeton. I'd, I'd have to go back and double check that. But he's been criticized for offering a really overly sympathetic portrayal of her in that book. Hmm. He's been really upset that the show's creators and actors have not consulted with him at all. He wrote a really um, sharp critique in The Federalist, which depending on who you ask is, certainly not the most credible of um, reliable sources out there, but I, I went and looked at his review carefully to see if there was any merit to what he said. And I found a few things that I thought would be interesting for us to discuss. First, one of the things he was really critical of was this opening scene that portrays Schlafly in a bikini. Yeah. And it's this, you know, tapping into this late 1960s, early 1970s, bra burning, protesting at Miss America, mystique of the era. Critchlow found no evidence in any of his work on her, any of the 
process of writing that book, any of her papers or her family's papers, that she ever wore a bikini like that in public. And I hmm. think that opening was really intended to orient you in a way that on one hand, it's, it, it took these great liberties attempting to show her, you know, clearly who among us can't relate to having you know, been sexualized in some way or seen someone we know and care about experiencing that. But on the other hand, he has no, he's never found any proof. And I have found a lot of reviews comment on that moment hmm. and read that moment as, you know, maybe it's problematic that we humanize her by showing this, but those critiques have not asked whether or not that actually happened. Hmm. So Critchlow is also really concerned about this other moment that we see, I think, in the opening episode with her, where she's worked all day, she's juggled the sort of yeah. public and private mm -hmm. aspects of, of living, and she goes home, and her husband's kind of pressuring her for them to, you know, have some fun in the bedroom, <laughs> essentially. I don't know how else to say that on our professional podcast, but, <laughs> you know, it's this, it's this, you know, it really harkens back to this notion of what Friedan wrote about in yeah. the feminine mystique some 10 years earlier, the disaffected, disenfranchised housewife whose husband views her as a cook, you know, a chief bottle washer, a, a mommy, a homemaker, and ultimately at the end of the day, a, a sexual tool there for his own gratification. So again, Critchlow talks about how a moment like this is really dangerous because, you know, we don't know that that ever happened. And it does again attempt to show her in this light that makes us pause and say, oh, maybe I find her really problematic or even repulsive in some of the things that she said and some of the choices that she made. But now I have more understanding. She has a lot of common ground with the other women at the time. And I think that that, you know, I don't doubt that Phyllis Schlafly or that any of the others who worked with her in Stop ERA faced discrimination, but I think to foreground, to establish that before showing how they got into this stop ERA mode really attempts to suggest causation. And yes, as any of us who have studied rhetoric or, you know, in composition classes know that would be essentially a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy to suggest yeah. that because one happened, the other followed. And the danger here is that, you know, these kinds of examples, I think, resonate with people. They're deeply familiar, whether it's the ones that I gave or whether it's being the only woman in the room asked to take notes. That has happened to me. That's happened to me with a PhD as a faculty yeah. member before I came to Swanee. I experienced that. And I, as I watched it, I felt the tug in my own self where it was, oh, that's, that's obnoxious. I, I know exactly what that feels like. And then I had to catch myself and realize, oh, this is what the show is trying to do. Mm -hmm. That's the work. So I think we have to remember that we don't want to ever speculate or ignore other women's experiences, no matter how distasteful we find them as political figures or as, as people in general. But I think we have to be careful as viewers to understand that the show is, is trying to orient us in a way that shows some sense of common ground between and among these women. And while that's important, that's not the question. The real question that this show needs to address, and I think is addressing, um, generally speaking, really well, is what do women choose to do based on their experiences? 
And that's what we need to pay attention to. How are women responsive to their circumstances? And how do they use that as a way to try to create, um, correct societal ills and empower rather than mute other women? And that's where Schlafly falls short for me. I think that you summed it up really well when you talked about causation, because that was my big frustration, because since it is so fictionalized, in a way, I mean, and I think I've even said this to you, Dr. Lynn, I feel like Schlafly would not appreciate this portrayal of herself, because... No, not at all. Mm -mm. Since it is so fictionalized, in a lot of ways, very sexualized and focused on um, her sexual agency or lack thereof in some scenes, I think that it in a way kind of demeans her by saying, okay, well, we're just going to assume that this is the reason that you did it because you must have the exact same experience as all women, even though you stood up and said that you didn't. We're just assuming this had to have happened to you. I'm sure you went on Phil Crane and were told to smile with teeth. Um, I'm sure you had to take notes, you know, things like that. And I found that to be really frustrating, not only because it humanizes her, which is fair in some aspect because she is human. So again, that's Mm -hmm. my own biases playing into the fact that Mm -hmm. I don't like the sympathetic portrayal. But then again, it just doesn't seem very accurate. And so it feels misleading to access, going back to the first question, her character and this series through this perspective. And it kind of makes you question, or at least for me personally, speaking from my experience, it makes me question watching later on in the, some of the other episodes, like the artistic direction and the artistic authenticity that they're portraying. I think some of the other questions that you all have prepared for this conversation really get at this. But as I'm watching, I'm thinking, is it is it possible and even probable that Schlafly's own experiences of both micro and macro aggressions in her life informed her choices? Absolutely. But one thing I think the show and that first episode also does hint at, and I think they actually should have pushed this a little bit further, what does it look like if we view Phyllis Schlafly as a woman who had political ambition and this became the way for her to be active and relevant. Mm-hmm. What if her way of claiming voice and agency and mobilizing other women in the process, I mean, you can see in the episode, she's reticent about delegating power to anyone else and only does so out of political expediency, not out of any yeah. real commitment to inclusion of voices, especially voices that dissent with her view of how things mm-hmm. should happen. So to me, the question here, which is really always the question, whether you're looking at a Phyllis Schlafly or a Shirley Chisholm or even a Hillary Clinton, is Mm. these are all attempts to grapple with the nature of women's political ambition. And Phyllis Schlafly has, to my reading in this episode, there's been a little more work to try to back off of that and say, no, clearly she... She just chose to react to bad things that had happened to her in a way that some of us find distasteful. Maybe, sure, but what if she was also just really ambitious? She couldn't get elected to office. So this became her way to be relevant, to be somebody. And that, to me, is the real question worth exploring in this miniseries. Yeah, Yeah, that was honestly what I was thinking watching it. Um, specifically the meeting when she's asked to take notes and you can see like how she's processing it and you know normally I think in a normal feminist like 
film, this is when she would pop off and be like, actually, blah, blah, blah. But instead, she goes on to, you know, bash the ERA and that grabs men's attention. And so then when that happens, I think that's when the ball starts to roll and she is like, okay, well, then maybe this is where I can have power. If my husband's not going to like support me running for office, I'll just like make noise over here. So that's kind of like where I was coming from thinking that, oh, well, maybe she's just like, in a sense, like a Lady Macbeth, like gonna just like destroy everything, but still have like the power. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good comparison. I love that. It also, it, it, I love Lady Macbeth, so. it also made me think about, and I think this is a good transition to the next question, but it made me think about, um, like, I know we've talked about, um, Dr. Lynn, we've talked about watching Bombshell and mm. I feel like like one thing that you see and I think we've talked about this in class um as well but like how um like the women in that film talk a lot about like not being feminist and I feel like more or less that's what Phyllis Schlafly is doing and like by saying well well I'm not a feminist like by bashing the URA that's how she's pulling like the men's attention in that moment um and able to almost like reclaim her power in a way that of course like you could argue is not doing that but in in the moment she's like reclaiming her power in the conversation um but I guess we can move on to this next question um the show paints a clear portrait of the patriarchy but some could watch the show and attempt to argue how times have changed and one thing that I noticed when I was watching it I was like, that was 50 years ago, like almost 50 years ago. Um, so it's some, like it's, it's been a long time in reality, but you could argue how times have changed. Um, James, I'm going to attempt to pronounce his last name, Pungi Wazik, writes in his New York Times review of Mrs. America, you've come a long way, baby, it tells America, but not always in a straight line and not necessarily forward. How does Mrs. America set up parallels with today's setbacks for women who are today, who are the Phyllis Schlafly's of today? Those are two questions. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts about the second one, but I'll start with the first one. So I actually think, I think again, much like the Robert Ebert review quote that you all selected, this to me is such a sharp insight because it gets at this balance between optimism and pessimism that even I struggle with as a woman, as a feminist, as a daughter, as a sister, as an educator, as a citizen, I grapple all the time with my own feelings of what is going well for women at any given moment and what is not going well. So, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, the show really does capture a lot of the patriarchal elements that women not only grappled with then, but women grappled with before the 70s, but also that have still persisted today. So, Mm -hmm. you know, politics being a man's game, the only woman in the room being asked to take notes. I I could tell you all kinds of stories about times that that happened to me going all the way back to junior high even as a, you know, before I came to Swanee, a a tenure track faculty member where there was an election order and a male colleague was supposed to be the next secretary of a faculty organization. And he came to my office and said, I think you would be better at this than me. 
and it was so um, horrible. And of course, others agreed, and I did the work. And when I got to Swanee, I recommended to our chancellor that he be the next secretary. And as, <laughs> as far as I know, he had to do that after I left. And it's a small victory, but one that yes. should have been happening in 2016. Of course, that was the year that that happened. And we know what else happened that year as well. <laughs> so, you know, women being told to wait a little bit longer, mm -hmm. to play nice, barging into a congressman's room is not the same as showing up with freshly baked bread in order to woo that last vote. Certainly that is, I think, all captured accurately as things that happened, even if they didn't happen to the particular people that the show seeks to represent. And of course, always bearing in mind that Sarah Paulson's character, much like Margot Robbie in the Bombshell movie, is a fictional character. She's a composite character. In fact, I think both Margot Robbie and Sarah Paulson, they are the stand-in for the audience. They are us. So when we watch Sarah Paulson note the shades of racism that happen in the, I think the first episode, or it, it might be in one of the ones that comes after it. I think it's a later one, yeah. It's a later one. So she, when she has that reaction, that reaction is supposed to mirror what the audience in fact, in certain ways, Sarah Paulson is, is telling us how we should feel. We can see through her how Phyllis Schlafly is so compelling and so fresh and wow, I want to be like her. And then I think we see gradual disenchantment happen there. Mm -hmm. But I think back to the question, you know, America is, we're in a really transitional period right now. Of course, we're always in a transitional period, but I see a lot of good happening I see strides that the Me Too movement has made. I see mm -hmm. sexual predators finally getting their day in court and actually not being able to buy their way out of mm -hmm. what they did. Um, I see women taking to the street and marching for their rights. I see increased enrollment by women in higher education, so much so that there are even those who are concerned about this kind of crisis of males in the academy that somehow it's a problem that too many women are getting educated. So that's, of course, interesting um, to observe that happening. And, you know, women entering these traditionally male-dominated um, areas in the workforce, women in STEM are, are rising, and I don't think you can suppress them. But at the same time, the pessimist in me, and maybe this is just quarantine pessimism talking mm -hmm. here, but I think that the 2016 election was a massive turning point. I think that it undid a lot of the gains that women had made, mm -hmm. particularly in the Obama era, era um, but even going back toward the Clinton era and the early 90s when women were so enraged about the Anita Hill hearings. And of course, the politicians who were involved in that are now still, you know, they're still in politics and even running for president. So they've still survived all of that, but women in the highest numbers ever took to, you know, took to the ballot, they went to Congress, and we still don't have enough representation of women, though, in, in politics. And I think that I've seen every example or every excuse under the sun used to explain why Hillary Clinton lost 
to Donald Trump in 2016. She didn't go to Wisconsin, Russian interference. She didn't have a strong campaign message. She chose a boring running mate. All of that is, I think, by and large, true. But to me, 2016 came down to backlash against women's gains. It came down to misogyny straight up in the most concentrated forms that I've seen in my lifetime as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I feel in certain ways less empowered now than I did when I was in college, right when Obama was taking office. And I remember the energy that I felt at the time. And there is a kind of hopelessness when we look past 2020 or 2016 in 2020. I mean, look at the lineup we had of of strong women running for president on the Democratic side, even if you disagreed with their politics, you couldn't disagree that they had qualifications and qualities, you know, Warren, Kamala Harris, uh, Kristen Gillibrand, and Amy Klobuchar in particular. I'm not sure where I would put Tulsi Gabbard. That's, that's maybe for another, <laughs> that's another podcast. I don't have an, or, I don't have Marianne Williamson. <laughs> I, I forgot about her completely. So <laughs> I, maybe she can, tell me my my enneagram numbers and do something mm-hmm. fun like oh, that. Oh, she definitely could. She definitely. she definitely could. So I think to me, the fact that um, women that qualified can run shows to me that it was not just this 2016 Hillary Clinton had a lot of baggage. The Arkansas Lady Macbeth used to be her nickname when she was first lady. So just to get us back to our, our literary references here, <laughs> I I had a lot of hope in 2020 that a woman would make it to the ticket and lead the ticket. I will be very interested to see the extent to which Joe Biden names a woman to his ticket. I do think that a woman on the ticket is more than a symbolic gain. And it's a lot like ERA, right? The question here is, does ERA tangibly make women's lives better or is it just a symbolic move? And I don't understand why it can't always be both. I reject these dichotomies that say that it's one or the other. So to me, a woman is symbolically important. But I also believe that, like Shirley Chisholm said, if there's not a seat for you at the table, bring a chair. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I see women continuing to struggle. And it's interesting to me that, you know, this question sort of, compels me to look look at things optimistically, but also it's hard to not see some pessimism right now. But I would say as my last thought on this, that the optimism I do have is students like you and seeing what you're capable of and knowing that you are motivated and that you are discerning and that you are um, kind and generous too, which I think there's a fair bit of that lacking in politics. And mm-hmm. and you're sharp and you're smart and you're willing to listen to people that you don't agree with. You're willing to look at someone like Phyllis Schlafly and try to grapple with what we're supposed to make of her. It would be very easy to just dismiss her and say, you know, that's pretty monstrous that this woman did that and managed to derail ERA. But I think that even having a conversation like this models the the hope that I have for the future. Thanks, Dr. Lynn. That's so nice. Stop being so nice to us. I mean, if you wanted, if you want me to be mean, we can go back and talk about Tulsi Gabbard. (laughs) I just don't know that that's in good keeping for today. I wanted to see if y'all had any feedback or or thoughts about any of that, because I still have a lot of thoughts about the who are the Phyllis Schlafly's of today. Yeah, I don't even know if I have like a concrete 
answer uh like for i mean i definitely could brainstorm some today phyllis schlafly's of today but i feel like um this question is just kind of as i was watching the show thinking about how like women are embedded in the like in the patriarchy or how like or the patriarchy is embedded in women um and i think that is why it is so huge that phyllis schlafly is at like the forefront of this show and it i think like the fact that it is like a, a fictionalized telling of the story is kind of important because i think about like other shows that i binge watch and you kind of do sometimes in a weird way fall in love with like the villain and you're like okay well like sometimes you're like almost rooting for them and like I'm not necessarily rooting for Phyllis Schlafly by any means but I do think it does this weird um it has this weird way of like causing you to empathize with her and like care about her success but also like wanting an alternative for her as well um which I guess is how I think about a lot of women that are like embedded in the patriarchy. Well, and I think it's interesting to look at the second question about the Phyllis Schlafly's of today, because I'm from Tennessee and Pate's from Alabama. So <laughs> like essentially, if you want to be a woman in politics, I actually had a conversation with someone who's from Nashville at Swanee and we were scheming and we were like, wow, we'd really love to be in politics. Maybe we'll just run a super right wing women because there is nothing that the South loves more than a woman who is advocating on behalf of men. They just love it. So, like, I know the Alabama governor, Kay Ivey, mm-hmm. big, big Phyllis Schlafly icon, big Phyllis mm-hmm. Schlafly energy, PSE, Phyllis Schlafly energy. She has PSE. <laughs> Marsha Blackburn. Marsha Blackburn, it's exactly who I was thinking yes, about. Absolutely. Thank goodness she is not my governor, not that Billy's doing, um, a much better job but that's that's again that's tea for another time she has huge pse phyllis schlafly huge pse in terms of like but those are obviously women in politics in terms of women in the media the first one that i immediately think of is tommy lauren or lauren tammy lawson tammy lawson because i think that she represents kind of my generation's phyllis schlafly and that she's attractive She's well-spoken. She's eloquent. She has something to say. She pops she, off and has no sources or proof for anything that exactly. she says ever. Yes, but she's the kind key. of person that I think, yeah. you know, when you're watching The Blaze from your computer at home, I'm, I feel like it I'm might be the same. I'm not watching The Blaze from my computer. Oh, I'm sorry. I just exposed you. Yeah, um, spread it. Dr. Lynn, huge The Blaze fan. Um, but I feel like if I'm someone who would do that. I could see it being the same experience that you see these women having when Phyllis Schlafly is talking at the brunch in this first episode, where it's like, oh my goodness, thank goodness, finally, a public woman is sharing my views, Mm -hmm. and I don't want them to take white privileges away. That's me coming for Tommy Lauren. And, but I think that there's a lot of validity to what they're saying for people who might be on the spectrum of feeling that way and then having these women come out and be so publicly brazen it emboldens these women so yeah um tommy loren wins the psc award for me biggest phyllis schlafly energy (laughs) she's an interesting example and when i saw this question 
my first impulse was how much time do I have on this podcast to talk about this? Because there's a lot, there's a lot I could say. I think so too. I agree about Tommy Laren. I think there are certainly others. I think of Ann Coulter. Mm-hmm. I think of a lot of the women at Fox. I think of what we saw in Bombshell. Someone like Gretchen Carlson yeah. certainly would fit that yes. bill. There are others. There are others who are less public in terms of television, but they have great social media followings. I think, for example, of Candace Owens mm-hmm. with Turning Point. I think of someone like. Allie Beth Stuckey, if you know who that is. She's a Furman alum where I went to college. So I'm I'm aware of her from that standpoint. And she testified. She certainly, much more than Tommy Lahren or Ann Coulter, though, I think, would represent the tradition of Phyllis Schlafly because there is a sexualizing Mm. that a lot of the women we're talking about play into. So Again, going back to Phyllis Schlafly wearing the bikini, which I don't believe happened, and Mm -hmm. her biographer doesn't either. And if you juxtapose the sort of 1980s Nancy Reagan-esque look that she embodied, it, it seems very in contrast with her that she would display her body in a way that plays into the male gaze also still trying to exude this aura of conservative, modest femininity, the cult of true womanhood, if you will. So I think for me, this question, there are women that are much more Schlafly-like in their appearance, in their conduct, and in their arguments that are not really so much media personalities, but have bought into the Schlafly Kool-Aid sort of (laughs) publicly. And I I would start with, and, and We've really forgotten, I think, in a post-2016 world, but I have to tell you, I was coming up when Sarah Palin was named mm, John McCain's yeah, ticket, absolutely. and I will, conf- I will confess to all of you, there was a time in my early life, well, in terms of how I was raised, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical family that loved Nikki Haley, that voted for Nikki Haley that votes a straight Republican ticket without ever questioning who the candidate is. And when John McCain named Sarah Palin to his ticket in, I think, 2007, it would have been for the 2008 election, I was among those young conservative Christian women who were just dazzled. I went out and tried to learn everything I could about her. And I don't think we can underestimate the impact that Sarah Palin had on national presidential politics in a post-2008 world. She's the only woman named to a Republican presidential ticket to to date. She ran as a very classical, traditional style woman. She always foregrounded her experience with motherhood, with marriage. That was her entire identity. And essentially, and I'm writing about her in my current book project, I have a chapter that looks at some of the ways that conservative media tried to frame Ivanka and Melania Trump as like the next Sarah Palin's, which of course mm-hmm. to us is a little bit preposterous. Mm-hmm. But but Sarah Palin effectively ran as John McCain's wife. That's the argument that I'm making. She wow. ran, and not only she ran, but she was packaged as the ideal Christian wife helpmate 
who would never overshadow her husband, who would always be neat and motherly and would know her place. And if you watch the movie that they made about this game change with Julianne Moore as Sarah Palin, Woody Harrelson is in it, it's actually a really terrific rendering from people who were in the room. Certainly there are fictional aspects to that, just like the Mrs. America show. But I don't think we can underestimate how well that image that Sarah Palin put out there, every Democratic woman that tries to run is always directly or indirectly contrasted with that image. They're unfeminine. They don't care about their children. They have the wrong skin color. I mean, Sarah Palin is like the idealized version of a woman in politics that Phyllis Schlafly herself, I believe, would have wholeheartedly endorsed, especially the fact that Palin, when she got questions she didn't know the answer to, she often fell back on talking about the Bible, and that was her answer to, um, to a lot of things. So I think for me, Palin is key, yeah. but I would also underscore the true woman movement, and I don't know, Quinn, if we talked about this at all in our class, I would encourage all of you, as well as anyone that listens, to Google the true woman movement. They have their own website. It is a flatly like grassroots movement. I think they're about 10 to 12 years old at this point of conservative Christian women who have, and what's interesting, really interesting is that they have intentionally adopted feminist strategies, methods, and language hmm. in order to suggest that the cult of true womanhood, that is the notion that women should be religious, they should be sexually pure, they should be domestic, they should submit to their husbands, is actually the true path to women's liberation. So it's this entire inversion that women are, and it's very Schlafly-like, that your true empowerment comes by keeping your house orderly, and this is where you execute independence and identity. And this is, I mean, they're not entirely like nationally famous you're not going to hear about them on cnn or even on fox news but there are many thousands of women that go to this annual conference they have every year they have a ton of media their website looks like cosmo the, it looks like cosmopolitan magazine you take quizzes to find out like how much of a shrew are you as a wife and i'm not a wife but i did Whoa. take the quiz and I found oh out yeah I we did take this quiz Oh, we all, Swanee women in our classes all came out to be a little yeah, bit. We were very shrewish. Does your husband, you know, do you ever disagree with your husband? Yes, you're shrew. So <laughs> what's interesting about the true woman movement, which I again encourage you all to check out, is it follows a similar arc that, that you see with Phyllis Schlafly. The founder of this movement is a woman named Nancy Lee DeMoss who has made an entire career out of writing these marriage books. Well, she was only married a few years ago. She married a widower who actually published her books because I, I don't know, that's kind of a whole separate like evangelical gossip that none of y'all need. But what's interesting there is that this is another woman who openly inhabits contradiction. Schlafly is a walking contradiction. Women belong in the home, tending their husbands and their children. She's out giving speeches. She's right, out writing exactly. books. She's out trying to play big politics with the big boys. And that contradiction right there is, to me, some of the most troubling aspects of what we see happening here. The women that tell you to be in the home are themselves not in the home. And when they are, it's all at this stage of the game 
performative on social media. Let me do an Instagram post mm -hmm. of me cooking in the kitchen. But then five minutes later, you're testifying before Congress mm -hmm. about a woman's right to choose abortion. And I'm referring to the example I gave earlier of, of Ali Beth Stuckey, who has a college degree and no other expertise, no graduate degree. And how is she qualified to decide a woman's right to her own body? Well, it's because I, I think, I feel these things, but she hasn't lived that experience. And to me, the contradictions are the most troubling aspects of all. Yeah, when we absolutely. consider women who play into the patriarchy, who benefit from it, and who seek to control the lives and choices of other women. Yeah. Snaps. I don't know if my headphones pick up snaps, but I'm snapping. <laughs> um, so we're going to move on to the next two questions. We're going to combine them. So I'll ask and then Pate's going to ask a follow-up. But... Um, as the New Yorker Doreen St. Felix writes, it's easy to imagine, or quote, it's easy to imagine an alternate Mrs. America, a sappier, more complacent historical drama that might have taken as its opening the last scene of the pilot, in which in 1972, the founding members of the National Women's Political Caucus celebrate in Washington, D.C. End quote. How are the women at the nation, National Women Caucus scene portrayed in comparison to Phyllis and the women she works with. And then so, my question was very like similar to that, but specifically looking at like how they're dressed um, and mm -hmm. like the women in the like against the ERA movement are dressed in like pastels and they're the mother daughter luncheon. Mm -hmm. um, and then you see like the women um, with the National Women's Political Caucus, they are all like very different, but they're all wearing this like hippie attire, like darker hues, but they're actually in like a DC office. And I was like wondering about like this great divide between them. And like, is it, do you think it's like exaggerated on purpose or do you think it's accurate and just like is able to relate with the audience to help them see like the great difference between these groups of women? Yeah, these are terrific questions. Let me let me start with the first one. Um, so what I, again, always remembering that what we're seeing is fictional, we know that women, whether or not they are conservative and wanting to stop ERA or whether or not they are pro-ERA, feminists, openly so, what I appreciate that the show has attempted to capture, and I think they've done a better job with the Women's Caucus than they have with Schlafly and the women that, that work with her, is capturing that women are not a monolithic block, that women have different approaches sometimes to the same question, and that sometimes there's dissent. What I do think the show has gotten right in terms of both the caucus and Phyllis Schlafly's group is they have shown the intentional or perhaps unintentional exclusion and othering of women within their actual groups. So we see this with the National Women's Political Caucus, especially, and I'm, I'm jumping past the Phyllis episode to the mm -hmm. Shirley episode, and we see how, sh how Shirley Chisholm is othered among the women who are supposed to be her own champions. And I was, as I was watching this, I was aware of it already. 
So I didn't learn anything new as a viewer myself, but I will say I was really struck here again by seeing how history repeats itself. I was thinking about the early women's rights movement. I was thinking about the exclusion of women like Ida B. Wells and others who attempted to join with their white sisters and march for the ballot. And we know that Alice Paul tried to discourage African-American women from marching because she was afraid that it would make the, the women's suffrage parade toxic and that they would lose any ground that they have. So I think, you know, without being glib about it, what we see there is white women behaving badly. We see white women attempting to strategize in a way that loses sight of the humanity of everyone that is trying to be a part of this struggle together. And I certainly think that the show got that right and showed how Shirley Chisholm was useful until she wasn't useful. And I thought this this ending scene of that episode where they show Steinem and others kind of in the audience as Shirley Chisholm, who has now had to drop out and give her delegates to McGovern, she's brought on stage and, and she's there in, I think, an entirely symbolic capacity. And I see Steinem and the other women portrayed as just tearing up and clapping. And it made me infuriated. Mm -hmm. I thought this right here is exactly the problem that you're with her until you're not with her. I, I would say about Schlafly, though, I was really, and I thought the show really, I'd never thought of this myself. I was so struck by, and I can't remember her name, but the friend of hers in the show who is her unmarried friend. Eleanor. Oh, Eleanor. Eleanor. Eleanor Schlafly. It's her sister. Oh, that's, that's her sister. Her, there it is. Her, her sister-in-law. Sister I did know that. So, yeah. I, think I was so interesting to think about, yeah. Well, so here's the thing. So now it's coming back to me. The the biographer, the Arizona State professor, Donald Critchlow, that was another thing he took issue with. He's like, that would never have happened. The sister was very equal with her. The sister had her own happy life. She was not this sort of appendage just sitting there like, you know, being kicked around by her sister. I have to tell you, though, whether or not we believe the biographer that this was invented or dramatized or whatever. I think that's a liberty I can really get on board with because I can imagine, and I, I, this is a little beyond my sphere of expertise. I'd love to learn more about it, but I can imagine the early years of this grassroots movement starting as, as Phyllis Schlafly, you know, calling every woman in her Rolodex to get them on board. And then it's slowly transitioning into this, you're only valuable to the movement if you're married because your entire identity is locked into being a wife and a mother and a homemaker. And this is why ERA is so threatening to that. I thought it was a really, I thought it was a good move to portray that. Maybe there was a way of inventing another character. Maybe the liberty with the sister-in-law was not as appropriate. I don't know that I have a firm thought on that either way, but I appreciated that they showed that othering because I did think it, all of these movements, all of these groups make mistakes along the way, some of them far worse than others. So on that score, I very much thought that the portrayal, um, how they compared to the, the two groups of women compared to one another, on that score at least, I really, I found a lot of, of things to praise there. 
I want to stop and see if y'all have any thoughts about that before jumping to the, the question about dress, which I think is a really terrific question. I love that you bring up Alice Paul because when the um, scene with the National Women's Party Caucus came up, it reminded me so much of the movie Iron Jawed Angels, which we watched <laughs> for um, rhetoric class, which depicts Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Alice Paul brawling, battling it out. Essentially, they both have the same goal of um, achieving women's suffrage, but the way that they go about it is very different. Mm -hmm. And I, like, it was almost like deja vu watching that. And I also think that it's accurate because, I mean, at least in my work, working with the Barrenwick Women's Center at Swanee as a co-director, and Nellie, you can speak to this as well, mm -hmm. I feel like we always kind of toe that line where it's like half or like, yes, super radical. We're going to piss everyone off. We're going to get what we want done. And then the other half is super like, no, we need to follow X, Y, Z. And I think that it's helpful to have both of those voices because it balances things out within that context. And obviously student leadership is very different from like leading an entire national campaign, but it's something that really spoke to me and it harkened back to Iron Jawed Angels, but it also was something that I could apply to my experience in a weird way, although it was frustrating <clears throat> to see them behave in that way because, you know, you don't want to see your heroes be messy, like for lack of a better word. It also was kind of refreshing to remember, okay, so these are the women that we look up to and we read every single day and they got things wrong. Like they got things super wrong, like Betty for Dan and the Lavender Menace. That's just, I mean, borderline inexcusable. But again, at the end of the day, in the 70s, they didn't know what was right or wrong at that point either. So that's something that really spoke to me. And that's why I think it's so huge that they don't start with that scene. Like, I think if, like, the scene had been, like, if it had just been, like, the celebration and cheersing and everything, and, like, wow, of course, there that scene is flawed. Like, I think if that had been the start of the show, like, we'd be, like, okay, let's kick back and, like, like reminisce almost, even though, of course, we were not there, but be, like, thinking about this movement and not be thinking, like, I think the show highlights the messiness, and that's what's so huge, like you're saying, Quinn. Like, I think we need to know like the mess <laughs> that yeah and I think that also like does allow us to I, I totally agree with what you're saying about like stu student leadership and how like there's a lot of mess in that and sometimes you really have to like in order to get things done like especially with the way that Swanee is structured like you're having to completely like buy into the patriarchy in order to like work around it and that is absolutely like not the way it should be and like of course mm -hmm. like a lot of times we, we do want to make noise and burn bras and do all of that but also like sometimes the intention like the way to get the end goal is sometimes buying into the patriarchy and that is disappointing but certainly a reality it's like walking that line for sure yeah. Well, your second question was about dress, and I thought this was, again, a really interesting question about do we, you know, do we walk, do we see the ways that women are portrayed in terms of their dress and style as an accurate representation 
or simply an exaggeration of difference? And I, I think the answer to that is both. I read a little bit from the costume designer of the show and they were very careful about attempting to get the clothing right for these women. And it's very true that Schlafly, and again, this is why I still find the bikini stuff so implausible. <laughs> I hope it doesn't turn out to be true because then I'll, <laughs> but I really don't <laughs> think it is. I really for don't all think of is. our millions of fans tuning into this podcast. I know. My entire critique <laughs> is premised on the, the bikini not being true. So. Um, but what I would say is Schlafly, and you saw this with the baking the homemade bread, Schlafly and the women she worked with, dress was a conscious strategy for them. You can't argue for the idealized wife without looking the part. And being able to model this vision of what they thought men wanted, this notion of woman as always put together as this really unachievable and unattainable image for a lot of women, especially women who did not fall into the category of white middle-class to upper-class woman. I think that they, um, Schlafly was certainly unaware that this tailored look modeled the kind of return to femininity that she was calling for and this notion and, and we see this again with these true women movement um, members that i that i talked about that are still happening today to let us know if we're being shrews or not and i think we see with shirley chisholm if you look at the way that shirley chisholm is dressed which they were very careful to get the clothing on her right too She's a woman in politics and her clothes in the show don't look that much different from Phyllis Schlafly because she's aware that you have to look a certain way if you're going to be a player. And as I'm thinking about this and thinking about when I was at University of South Carolina, I was a coach for the university mock trial program and they brought me in to help with speech. And then I ended up somehow being the entire program advisor. And I don't know how that happened, but, <laughs> and I remember traveling to tournaments with these students, many of whom have gone on to achieve great success in law school and, and business school and, and other places. And I remember having to stop to buy pantyhose at Walgreens on these trips where we're driving from Columbia, South Carolina, all the way to Middle Tennessee State University where we had a, a big tournament every year. And I remember Go being, Raiders. Yeah, right. I remember being in the car with these students and, you know, why are we buying pantyhose? Oh, well, if we want our program to succeed, the women have to wear a certain kind of suit with pantyhose and high heels. And judges, especially older male Southern judges, will dock our team's program if we don't have pantyhose or god forbid the women wear pantsuits instead of so part of me wow. was obviously i believe my students but there was a part of me that was so incredulous that this could still be happening that i was like mm, really and then we got judging sheets back and i realized oh oh this is this is true they're commenting on their clothes and I heard judges complimenting the girls in these rounds and I'm sitting there and just, you know, as a coach, I just want to <laughs> do something drastic because it's so patriarchal and 
I, we had a lot of conversations in the program, especially with the women about what does it mean for us to concede to this obviously sexist culture that still persists in the world of mock trial. And that's just a representative example. I could name any other number. I think the law itself still experiences this. Certainly other careers that, you know, women sometimes dress a certain way as a strategy because they want, they're willing to concede that so that they can get gains in other places. So I don't think we can underestimate how, you know, we can talk about what that means to, to make those concessions, but certainly Phyllis Schlafly was aware that dress mattered. And we see that a lot with the ways that the feminist women in the show are represented. And a lot of those women were considered at the time to be very unfeminine. They were considered to be sloppy. They were considered to be mannish. There is a great debate, and you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's open access. Phyllis Schlafly and Betty Friedan debated each other. And I have shown that debate in classes before and I've, I've shown it, I don't think I showed it in your class, Quinn, in Voices of American Women, but I showed it in the section of it I taught last year. And the first thing that students say when we watch this, you know, 25 minute or so debate is they comment on how Schlafly constantly interrupts for Dan and doesn't have evidence and how they find that so problematic. And then without fail, the conversation turns to their dress. And wow, Schlafly looks really, like she, every hair is in place. Her suit is really neat. For Dan, looks like she didn't really try really hard, kind of sloppy. And even as I hear students make the critique, the point is being proven right there that the dress matters even to contemporary viewers. And whether it's bell bottoms or, you know, wearing a funny looking hat or whatever, dress for what it's worth mattered a lot here. And I think the show on one hand dramatizes it to make that point, but I also don't think they've taken too many liberties either. I think it's a pretty, the costume designers were very careful about historical accuracy there. So that would be my, my thoughts to this really terrific question. It also makes me think about um, the TV show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. My mom and I have been watching that in quarantine and like it was set like 60 years prior to this and just focuses on like New York. Um, I think it was set in but, the 60s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like 19, like end of the 1950s, early 1960s and like the dress, like the costumes, I find myself being like, oh my gosh, like uh, they look so cute. And it like, I just get like, you know, sucked into the whole, um, just like the retelling of the setting um but then I also like am thinking critically about like what the power of her outfits have like she's able to go and like do this comedy routine that's very unladylike and like not normal for someone of her stature but because she's dressed a certain way you know she can get away with it because she's cute or like it becomes her bit. She's like a, a like a woman comic. So I just like find myself thinking about how important like dress is in not only like portraying a story, but also explaining, I guess, the underlying effects that like characters have. I think the show Mad Men is another really good example too of, and I really appreciate these shows that return to this era of the 60s and the 70s because this was an incredibly important 
time for, for women moving into the workforce, reclaiming their identities, joining social movements, becoming politically active. And, you know, we saw this Quinn in our class when we looked all the way back at the early women's rights movement. And while there's a lot that tends to get talked about in terms of the Seneca Falls Convention or abolition or even temperance, we studied the dress reform movement and how even women in the 1830s and 40s were viewing dress as a kind of prison or as a kind of slavery. And of course, we we interrogate those analogies to see how fair and accurate it is to say that your bodice is the same as literally being enslaved in chains and forced to work on a plantation. So obviously those are problematic kinds of analogies right at the front. That said, we, we do look though at dress reforming, dress continues I think even today. And, and I think these questions are, I think young women today, whether they're in mock trial or whether they're going on job interviews or any career or vocation that any of you are th thinking of going into, you're still having to grapple with the choice of what to wear and how to wear it based on the expectations of an audience that may bring, you know, patriarchy and misogyny to the table as they assess you and your competence and your qualifications. And certainly we saw that a lot with Hillary Clinton running for president, that the pants suit was so threatening because it upended the kind of ideal that a Phyllis Schlafly, you know, inscribed into our cultural consciousness some 40 and 50 years ago. Although we know Phyllis Schlafly just died um, during the 2016 election, I think, and was still politically active up until the very last um, moments of her life. So certainly she didn't go away, but she lost a lot of power, I think, once the ERA debate was kind of settled. So I think this is a good time to transition to our last question. And we kind of talked about this um, earlier before we started recording. But um, so in the first episode, the audience is able to witness this strong gap between positions of power held by women of color. Um, while we see a woman of color run for president of the United States, we also watch as other women of color serve as maids and cooks for wealthy white women. Um, so what does this juxtaposition of representation add to the story, if any? So I think, again, this is a really great question. I think we have to first and foremost keep in mind that this show is being told to us through the lens of whiteness. It is a story of white middle to upper class women advocating for their rights in the 70s. And of course, issues of class, marital status, sexuality, and race, as we all know, are intersectional dimensions of these women's identities. So I think that's the, the first thing I would say. I, I confess to all of you that as I watched the show, even before seeing this question, as a viewer, I was somewhat troubled that the ways that women of color were portrayed I don't know, there's no inaccuracy of, that I know of so far in how they've shown Shirley Chisholm. But for me, it's been kind of troubling that there's been a real lack of inclusivity there. Because on one hand, we see Shirley Chisholm, who I think the, the othering of her within the white leaders of the feminist movement, that to me is, is 
a really critical story that this miniseries is telling us or reminding us of if we already knew about it. But to me, there's this whole spectrum of women of color who intersect with this movement, some of whose stories we know, some of which have not been remembered in history or recorded. And then to sort of go back and only see women of color in this other kind of domestic kind of subservient role, to me, it was, I don't know, I, as, a, as a viewer, I was a little bit troubled that these were the only choices that I had to see how women of color intersected with the movement, how they struggled, how they participated. So I did a little digging to see if any of the major reviews picked up on this. And a lot of what I found was sort of you know, women of color finally get their due with the women's rights movement. And I thought, that's not right, though, because even though Shirley Chisholm's import, her, her story is incredibly, you can't tell this story without talking about Shirley Chisholm. To me, it's still a way of kind of perpetuating a narrative that women of color were not as involved in these movements. And maybe that's part of the critique that the absence there is meant for us to question and I do know that the kind of Schlafly in the, I, I don't know if it was in the first episode, but the episode where we see some of the women being openly racist yeah. and threatening to walk out when they, in my mind, it was a very lukewarm way that, that Schlafly, a very kind of cowardly way that they portrayed her instead of just saying, hey, we're not, we're not doing that here. We're not going to be racist people. This movement does not have room for that. It was a very kind of cloying way where she was afraid of losing their support more than she was of calling them out for being explicitly racist. And I think that, you know, we run the risk of us, of us viewing her as, you know, maybe she had some issues with it, but in the matter of, you know, political expediency, she was afraid to lose the support of these women. Again, I don't, there's a fair bit of evidence out there, particularly after the 70s, where a lot of Phyllis Schlafly's writings, especially contemporarily around the 2016 election, were pretty openly racist, particularly against um, minorities, not so much from the African American community, but certainly in the context of immigration questions. She did not, especially later in life, try to hide those tendencies and those impulses. So I, I don't know that the show has gotten this right on one hand, but on the other hand, a charitable reading, and I'd love to hear what you all think about this, a charitable reading would be that by only giving us these potentially maybe even stereotypic views of black womanhood that they're either on this end of the spectrum or they're all the way over here and there's nothing in between. Maybe that's the point to that absence, that lack is actually meant to provoke us to reflect on it, to look into it further. I'd love to hear what, what you all think about it because these are questions I'm still grappling with and I've not seen past the third episode yet. So I'm very curious and excited to see how the show moves forward on the question of race in, in future episodes. I think that one thing I found interesting because I definitely agree. And I think that after watching more of the miniseries, I know that we're only talking about the time container and context of this first episode in which I, I agree. It really, really bothered me. Um, 
But then as we transition, as you were talking about, Dr. Lynn, to the Shirley Chisholm episode, I think they did a really good job of showing, and I think this is still true today, and it's problematic, but, um, and I appreciated that they exposed, like, the underbelly of the women's movement and showing that in order for women of color to have political power, there has to be, like, the white women are kind of the gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. So although... Shirley Chisholm is at the forefront of her movement and running for president. Really, it's Bella and Gloria and Betty who are kind of pulling the strings behind her. I thought that was really interesting. I can't remember if it was in that episode or a different one where you actually see Phyllis Schlafly's housemaid um, watching Shirley Chisholm on TV. And afterwards, Phyllis tries to give her extra food left over from their cabinet and the housemaid is like, I'm going to donate to this to my church. Essentially being like, I don't need your help. You don't need to demean me in this way. Right. So I, after seeing those episodes, I think I lean towards the idea that maybe it is criticizing um, political systems that put Black womenhood, put Black women and experiences of Black womanhood as secondary to those of white women. However, I don't know if that's, like, abundantly clear within the context of the first episode. Like, I think it's more problematic in the beginning. Pete, what were you thinking when you wrote this question? I think this is so interesting. Yeah, like, I was thinking about how just, like, it's literally, like, two opposite ends of the spectrum. And, like, I was just, like, you know, like, there there are, like, women of color in the episode, but it's, like, how are they being portrayed, and is this, like, healthy, is this, like, good, um, just to have, like, one very powerful and one not, or, like, is it even accurate? Like, what, I was just trying to think of, like, what the purpose of it was, um, and, I mean, I've really only watched, like, the first two episodes, so I'm glad to know that in the later um, episodes that there is more representation and I guess more character development when it comes to those. But um, yeah, when I was thinking of questions, I was just like, wow, like when I'm like thinking about the women of color, like characters here, there, there isn't, like there aren't many options to look at. Yeah, and again, maybe it's to show the lack of agency no matter where women of color were at the time you know Shirley Chisholm appears to have really made it right and maybe the point there is just to show the most extreme polar opposites to underscore the point that women of color lacked agency in all vocations all walks of life at the time and I think on that point that is accurate yeah, it's so interesting because this conversation's like causing me to think like, wow, it is like seemingly two women at like opposite ends of the spectrum. Like ultimately they are both like having to be like under submission of of the white woman. Like whether it's through um like having to be uh work like working in a white woman's household or working in a predominantly white women's movement. Um, mm. And I do think like it, it is kind of good that that first episode kind of invokes this anger, um, hopefully in a, in a sense that still allows you to continue to watch. Um, 
and then like see kind of the ways in which this kind of um the show kind of underscores this issue um because that Shirley episode does show the the lack of intersectionality of the movement yeah um yeah and, and like I had a very similar reaction I think to all of you where that first episode I was like what is happening like what like is this really the only two the only two experiences we're going to be seeing um but that shows that those were the only two experiences that were focused on like in that moment um particularly by white women well those are all of our questions this was so great literally so great great questions i will be thinking about them as i grade final papers and (laughs) put in grades and then hopefully pick up with the next episode that focused on betty for dan Um, i'm excited to. oh that's a wild ride get ready Uh, it it can't not be yeah these are the kinds of questions that all viewers should be thinking about as they watch so these are really terrific Thank you so much thank for, you. for answering thank our you questions, all. Dr. Lynn. And um, thank you to whoever is tuning in <laughs> and has made it this far in our podcast experience. Hey, Dr. Manskirts, probably <laughs> only you. Hope you enjoyed. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I guess we'll wrap up. This was Feminist Feeds and Quarantine Queens. Woohoo! Woohoo! Woo-hoo.